And I, I do believe that I had a positive mindset in that phase with the ACL and even getting through that challenge of you know, losing an All-Ireland semi-final in your debut year and not performing well on the day. I definitely had an inner resilience of what I was telling myself in a sense of I got the ACL and I will come back from this. That was Shane O'Sullivan. There's loads more to come from Shane. But first, we'd like to draw your attention to the sponsor of this episode, The Learning Physiotherapist. The Learning Physiotherapist is an online platform that was launched by myself and David this year, where we've brought together some of the world's most renowned physiotherapists and sports medicine experts to give lessons on the soft skills that make all of the difference in the profession. Some of the experts include Amy Arendale, Stefania Rizzo, Dr. Ian Horsley, Nicole Van Dyke, Grant Downey, Benoit Matthew, to name but a few. Not only will you get access to masterclasses delivered by these mentors, but you'll also get the chance to join a community of like-minded, ambitious physiotherapists looking to learn, network and grow. And finally, the best part about The Learning Physiotherapist is that it's a non-profit organisation. Each monthly membership goes towards supporting cancer research, IBS, Down syndrome and mental health support services. The course has just kicked off in January of this year, but there's still time to join. So check us out www.thelearningphysiotherapist.com. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 105. Today we spoke with Shane O'Sullivan, executive leadership and performance coach at Inspiring Excellence and former inter-county Waterford hurler. Shane focuses on the principles of high performance and mindset training with Inspiring Excellence. His vast experience in the trenches from a very successful sporting and business career has worked with Fortune 500 leaders, multinationals, CEOs, and many professional athletes. In this episode, we dive into how Shane has navigated challenges during the pandemic and the positives he's taken from it, and how this period has led us to questioning what is really important, resonance, purpose, how brittle life is, connection, relationships, and other big rocks. Shane shares how he responded from an ACL injury whilst playing and what he learned from it. We talk about leadership in moments of crisis in organizations and sports teams, those crucible moments, what drives resilient, high-performing cultures. Shane gives his insight into how to build into a collective value system, why ownership of those values as part of a team is so important. Thanks for joining us, Shane, and inspiring excellence. Shane O'Sullivan, thanks so many for coming on today. Really looking forward to speaking to you. How are you? Good, Kieran, and yourself? I'm very well. I've got David here beside me. Shane, what's it been like for you over the last couple of months, you being a man in the mindset and psychology space? You've probably been able to use a lot of those tools to help navigate through a, a difficult period. 100%, yeah. And it's um, it's been very good from the perspective of what I do in a coaching sphere because I think people's appreciation for the importance of mindset has gone through the roof in these current times, um, particularly with the challenges that we faced, you know. Going through the pandemic, what, what do you think was the most maybe positive thing that you've taken? I think a lot of people have looking at the, the challenges and the, the setbacks of it. Has there anything good coming from it in terms of family or anything like that that you've taken? Yeah, well, from a, from a work, I suppose, and family perspective, I think it's been very revelatory for a lot of people across the world in many, many different contexts. And the concept being that, I mean, before COVID hit, if you take our own lives and actually take an introspective look of where we were and what we were doing, we were kind of on a wheel. 
And if you think of even, a, if you use the analogy I'd often use of a, an x-axis and a y-axis, we were like on the x-axis in maths and we were running along that x-axis looking for maybe it was the next job, maybe it was the next, you know, the next role in an organization, maybe it was the next, um, you know, the next feeling of euphoria, the next et cetera, et cetera. And we were all running, you know, I will, I will be happy when I get to this or when I achieve this. And, you know, in the midst of COVID, what it did was, and I know it obviously has negative effects across the world, but what it, one thing it did in a positive sense was it stopped us all. And it allowed us to stand on that x-axis and look around and say, what am I actually doing here? Who am I? What's really important? How do I want to live my life now, understanding how, how I suppose brittle it is? And all of the changes that have happened in the world. And the biggest thing for me was people actually were forced to stop and think about their life, their place in it, and what they actually wanted in conjunction or parallel to what they were doing. And that led to a lot of people realizing that, oh, I actually had something maybe that happened when I was a young child that I ne never dealt with. Or I'm actually in a relationship that it's not actually working out. And I, I, I need to get out. Or I'm in an organization which I'm driven to work nine to eight, five days a week, and I'm not connecting with what's really important to me, which is my family or that precious time that I have to myself. And I think the biggest thing I can see is when people reflectively ask those questions. Yes, it's struggling, it's hardship, it's tough, it's hard conversations. But when they come out of that, and I think you can see that around if we look deeper below the surface, some people are coming out of this in a, in a better place. And they're looking into 2021 with more hope, more stability, more connection to values, and I suppose more motivation to live the life that they dreamed of or to live the life that they want. And that can be as simple as connecting more at home, or it can be, as you obviously the podcast is based around high performance and achieving something with a group or an organization. So that's what I see as the biggest positive from the whole experience of 2020 and the COVID situation. And if, if we park COVID, Shane, has there been a point in your career, in your playing career or, or in your, your business space, when that kind of moment of presentness, taking stock, looking at your purpose and your values, that really came to the fore? Good question. Um, there was many points along the way, but I, I think the first, and maybe it's, it's uh, the initial bias, that the first thing that you experience in that context would be the most impactful. But it brings me back to when I was say I was 14 in, in the Brandon House Hotel in, in Wexford. And Liam Griffin was the, the Wexford hurling manager, as you know, that won the 1996 All-Ireland. And he actually went to the same secondary school, De La Salle College in Waterford, that I went to. And our trainers, coaches of the under-14 hurling team at the time, decided it would be a great idea for us to be in his presence for a conversation with Liam. Um, so in fairness, he gave of his time. And we all got on a bus, not knowing what to expect, really, and we went down to Wexford into the Brandon House Hotel and we all really expected him to speak about the technical importance of that Wexford team or how they were brilliant at taking scores or they were so fit and athletic. But he spent the whole hour and an hour plus talking about the importance of the mind and how the, the difference between that Wexford team and all of the generations that hadn't achieved 20, 30 years previous was that they focused on developing a mindset built on actions that could allow them to perform to their best. So he, he spoke about 
you know, Billy Byrne at the time, you would see he would have come on in All-Ireland semi-finals and he would have got goals. And every time the high ball was driven in by Adrian Fennan, he caught the ball and turned and scored a goal and the crowd roared. But he spoke about Billy Byrne being with a sports psychologist in the dressing room when the team were training every single week and actually spending 15, 20 minutes visualising himself receiving those high balls, catching them and turning and scoring the goal as he was coming on in the matches. He spoke about the importance of team dynamics and, and building a trust and a relationship base that was able to be the culture of the team that came out of that. And even going on to beaches up the Wexford coast, just camping overnight and spending the night together in proximity to each other, discussing different aspects of, of life and just having that social connection, um, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just enthralled by it. And I suppose as a, a, I suppose a moment of uh, taking stock and for me to transition into a different phase of my life, I was very young at 14, but I, I was actually captain of the team and my teacher, I was very young and introvert, asked me to go up and tank lean. So I did afterwards very uh, tentatively um, because of my shyness. But I did pluck up the courage somehow to ask him about a book or a reading. Is there anything where I could learn more about this? And he told me to get the inner game of tennis by a man called Timothy Galloway. And um, I went into the book centre in Watford uh, the week after. got all the money I could. didn't have that book, but they got it in for me. And I read that book and I didn't stop reading ever since. So when you say a taking stock, that took me on a, on a transitional period of Maybe having focus as a child and obviously hurling is about technical skills and performance is all about the skill set. It took me actually to maybe not, this is not true, that it's actually all more about the mind and being able to use the mindset to, I suppose, align with the skills. And that's where high performance was at. So I think that was, I know it was the initial taking stock and I was very young, but it led me on a path that's, that's led me here to this conversation today. I'd love to dive into two sort of areas. The first would probably be your career from there so you were quite talented at hurling at that age but you went on to have an amazing career with 13 years playing inter-county for Waterford with some great honours like Munster medals national leagues do you want to tell us a bit about maybe the career path that followed after De La Salle College yeah well I suppose interesting enough it was it was um it was nearly a roller coaster career path with Watford in a good sense. I mean, came in at a young age. I remember the first conversation, Justin McCarthy rang uh, my home house actually, and I was 17. And <laughs> I, I'll never forget it because he rang and he said in the Cork accent, uh, Justin McCarthy here. And my mother said it was Justin McCarthy. And then the, the phone rang and <laughs> it's Justin McCarthy here. Um, and I actually said, Come on now, lad, stop. <laughs> I didn't believe it was him. And he said, no, 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 this is Justin. And he was explaining that they had a meeting uh, at a certain time the following week. And uh, I was just taken aback by it all. I suppose I didn't think that I was anywhere, you know, obviously played with the club. And it was my first year. I was very, very young. I was still, you know, minor, just out of the minor grade. So I didn't expect that call. And I suppose that led me on to a, an experience of a really good team, a brilliant team an outstanding team at a young age and it was just brilliant grounding to understand pros and cons and what worked for players and what didn't work for players and you know I suppose it gave me a great grounding in the negative and positives of that great team and how they were so flamboyant and brilliant and exceptional and they had so many good leaders and their skill sets were phenomenal but then we also had other challenges that we didn't maybe gel as as maybe the present team would or maybe you know other teams that have been successful over the time and we'd often even 
conversations about it. Maybe if we work more on the mindset side or maybe if we, you know, work more on team ethic and culture, there might have been that extra bit. But I mean, it was also a fantastic journey in relation to the successes of the team. I mean, we, I know we won <clears throat> numerous national leagues, monster championships, and, you know, we obviously progressed to the All-Ireland. Now, that wasn't a good day and, and we can talk about that if you want to, but all of the other experiences were very, very I suppose, grounding in a sense that you'd learn what works and what doesn't work. And then when you go into your latter, your, I suppose, your 20s and that, you have a great connection to positive role models that have achieved at the highest level, you know. Um, I just remember the first experience in particular, um, playing the All-Ireland semi-final at 18, and it was just a surreal experience. And it didn't go well for us, didn't actually go well for me either, you know, as a debut, but it was, it was actually brilliant because you're experiencing... The build up to an all Ireland semi final at 18, with 60, 70,000 people there and all of the media attention and, you know, the challenges and just learning what didn't work for the team and personally at that level would allow me the following actual January, I did my cruciate ligament and was out. And that was a big, I suppose, challenge for me to come back to the level I was able to come back with. But in the experience of that all Ireland semi final at 18 years of age gave me the was gave me the skill set when I went back and played numerous times after to be able to be in a much better place. So I think that was just a fantastic experience in that initial phase. And then, you know, we could keep going, but I mean, how much time do we have? Then Davy came along and we had uh, another fantastic experience. And then it was Derek McGrath and another interesting experience there as well. And a good, a great team as well that have achieved, I suppose, a National League title um, as well. So, And Shane, what you know now about speaking to people in keynotes and and delivering content in terms of how to navigate and face up to challenge and adversity and maybe how to approach failures as learning points of reflection. Is there anything you know now that you wish you knew or might well have helped you at the times when, you know, you rupture your ACL or you lose a big match or something just didn't quite go to plan? Yeah, great question. Um, everything I know now, <laughs> I wish I knew when I was 18. I've often Easy actually, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all in that boat. Um, I've often actually reflected, and I'm, this might go for everyone, but if you're to take the mindset of, of me now at the latter stages of my career and put that into an 18-year-old, what, how much better could he be? And I'd say phenomenally better um, for everyone. Um, so maybe there's, a, there's a, a gap there in relation to building that mindset from a young age. And people naturally have those mindset skills. But to go back to your question and not lose your point, the resiliency element of it, I think the one main thing that I would, I suppose, have brought back to that 18-year-old stage is that an understanding of the impact of mindset and the importance from your mindset leading to your actions and your actions leading to your outcomes. So the story we tell ourselves is essentially the person we become. And I, I do believe that I had a positive mindset in that phrase, phase with the ACL and even getting through that challenge of you know, losing an All-Ireland semi-final in your debut year and not performing well on the day. I definitely had an inner resilience of what I was telling myself in a sense of I got the ACL and I will come back from this. Um, a phrase that stuck with me ever since uh, was sent by actually a friend of mine that played for a different county team, but he, he sent me a message in the midst of that. And uh, the, the phrase I'll never forget was, what seems like the end of something great is actually the beginning of something even greater, if that's what's in your character. And it just stuck with me. And, and that was a challenge put forth for me. And I think 
the mindset for me at the time was it is in my character. You know, I took I took six months off uh, college in UCC. They were brilliant. And I was on a scholarship there. So they were very, very accommodating. And I just trained every month for every day for six months. Uh, great. I was lucky to Kilkenny Physio at the time. Robbie Lodge was, um, he's actually a cousin of mine. And he took me on board full time with Shea Fitzpatrick and Belly Gunner here. Brilliant coach and trainer at the latter stages, getting me back. And within five months and a week, I stepped back to play another 21 match. And uh, people didn't believe it was possible. You know, even now, they'd say six to seven months or eight months. But because of the structure and the mindset that I had, luckily enough at the time, um, I think it led me to the actions on top of that to lead me to the outcomes of being back in such a uh, an early phase and also then next year playing inter-county again uh, for my county. So the one piece I'd say is that the story we tell ourselves is the person that we become. And it's so, so important for us to get that story right. So if you take the, all of the conversations we're having with ourselves every day of the week, what are we saying? What are the mindsets we're instilling in ourselves? And because and, those lead to the actions and to the outcomes. So they need to be positive, affirming, honest, authentic, and real. And once we come from a frame of, you know, belief and a positive mindset, you know, so much opens up for us in the context of what we can do with our lives, whether in sport or outside of sport. That's excellent. Speaking about the mindset and the inner resilience you built through setbacks, I'm wondering with the current success levels of, say, Dublin football or Limerick hurling, two teams who have excelled in every, every aspect of the game, including the psychological part of it. They seem very resilient and they seem like they have a, a fantastic culture built around them. They've both suffered setbacks in terms of Limerick with a bit of an upset against Kilkenny last year and Dublin, well, we're going all the way back to Donegal, which was an upset at the time as well. Do you think it's almost not a necessity, but if it's a, it's a major building block towards a team culture of winning that you have to fall down before you get going yeah it's a great point and i think in organizations as well that the, the statistics and i suppose the research would align to this you know that there is crisis moments within families organizations groups teams and in those crisis moments you can go two ways you can you can fall into the inner dialogue in, amongst the team of challenging each other and the blame game, or you can actually really open up a conversation and say, what really happened here? And what are we doing that's not working? And the most important question, what are we going to do with that? Where are we going to go now? And if you take those crisis moments with all great families, organizations, teams, they always come out in a better place. And I believe that it's not necessarily by chance, but that the structures and the systems before the crisis moment might have led them to, you know, responding in such a positive way in the context of the situation. So I think that that's something that might have been built up in the culture previously, that there was an open, authentic conversation around times of challenge, that people had a, a really strong trust in each other, that they believed in everybody around in the group, that they're willing to challenge each other in an open, um, appropriate way not with mean-spirited personal attacks, but being open and transparent about what they see in their observations with radical transparency. And I think that's a, that's a key component that culture might have been there previously. But also in those crisis moments, the capacity of a leader and a visionary leader to bring the group on is phenomenal. So if you take those teams, and even if you think of your own, there's many great teams around and organizations around the world. If you take those teams to have they have a certain number of leaders. And maybe it's one, maybe it's a Jim Gavin, a visionary. Maybe it's a, a JP McManus and a John Kiley, you know, um, for the two teams you mentioned. And they have a capacity to 
you know, rallied the troops, challenged them at the right appropriate level and create a culture whereby in times of great challenge and crisis, we actually become stronger and, and we respond. And that's what, look, that's what resilience is, is the ability to bounce back from those challenging situations. And just to add on that, Shane, like, you know, we've both read about those, you know, those crucible moments and, you know, Nick Saban in Alabama would often say, you know, so what, what now? And uh, just, just to add a little bit more into that about the teams, you know, we've both would have had experience in that space. So you walk into a building, a high performance facility where you see these words up on the, up on the, up on the paint and up on the structure. And it might say resilience and it might say integrity and all these values that obviously we know are lofty and are empowering, but maybe there's a, there's a recognition from somewhere within that organization. It could be you walking in, it could be us, it could be a GM, it could be anyone that maybe everyone's not quite embodying that value system. Maybe there's someone in there that's not fully bought into it. And that obviously is important in the corporate setting. What would you do there? What would you do when you're trying to get everyone to buy into the collective value system? Yeah, very good question. So the first thing is that people to buy into anything, they must be a part of it. So if you take that analogy that you use walking into a building and seeing words on the wall, I mean, those words are nothing unless the people that have put those words there are the people that are in the room. So when you get a group or an organization or team together and actually get them in collaborative approach with maybe the management and the whole, I suppose, external group together and say, like, what are our values? You know, what, what words really resonate for us and why do they resonate for us? And actually really get back down to earth and say, we can put many words, many quotes on the wall, but what's really unique, inspiring and motivational for us as a team or as a group? What really matters? And when you spend time, I mean, a number of sessions around a group and you get to the core of what really matches them, what really connects to the heart of the team. And you ask those deep questions. And why is it important that you think that that word is important or what that value is important? And you really, really open up about that. Then you can put the words on the wall and they have a a really significant impact. And then after that stage, then it's about, okay, those are our values. But what happens? What do we do to align to those values? So where does the rubber meet the road here? So we have a value of integrity. What does that mean? Or integrity might be construed as honesty. What does honesty mean? Well, maybe honesty means when we reflect on a match on a Monday or a Tuesday in a video analysis session, that if we see something that can impact the team positively, that we call it out. Now, that's integrity. That's honesty. That's a value. And people are living that value. With all of these great teams and great organizations, yes, they'll have the words, but they have created the words themselves and they've aligned those words to what they do every day. So it's a living it's a living document or it's a living transcript or it's a living representation of what that team stands for. To the trained eye, it mightn't be very obvious to, to the observer that watches the match maybe on a Sunday or a Saturday in the last two All-Irelands, but to the trained observer, you will see those values within those great groups of people It's basically shining through on the day of a, a high-performance game or you know, on the day of an All-Ireland final. Going back and building what you said earlier about radical transparency and the ability to have an authentic connection it's it's sometimes easier when there's a large company with a structure and they've got big ambitious goals and they've set out a a particular course or structure that they're going to follow 
for club teams across all sports in Ireland, in the UK, in the US, how do you adopt that approach of being able to call people out without them maybe taking it personal to try and align what you're trying to do with the, with the ultimate goal? Is there a particular way that you would recommend for maybe managers or leaders or captains to try and instill a culture like that? Yeah, brilliant question. It's 100% based on trust. If you go in or I go in and we call out somebody in a group in a, in a in trying to be in a constructive manner after a key performance or challenge or crisis and they don't believe in us or they don't trust us as a person, well, then that's going to lead to conflict. So the first and most important principle of high-performing teams is that there is 100% trust among the group. And the most important thing, if you take a, a group of seven there is, I think there is something like 64 relationships. I might be wrong with the maths there, but 64 relationships in that group of seven people. That's the most important thing, is the relationship between each one of those people with each other. And you need to carve out time for that. And you need to start doing activities together. You need to start focusing on what does trust mean. You need to be open and honest. You need to understand what's their motivations. You need to help each other. You need to have a heartfelt connection and compassion to what's going on in their life on and off the field. If you take the famous all-black team that won you know, the last World Cup for them, they transitioned into a team that was based on the fundamental value of trust. And what they did is when somebody was fe- facing a challenge in their life, like a death in a family, everybody went to the funeral. All the team surrounded that individual and supported them. If they were taking bags off a bus, you'd often see in the videos, they would have a team of 25, 30 people, including the backroom staff, and all of the bags, like in a train, taking something out of a train, were transitioned to the next person, to the next person, all to the reception of the hotel. That's the kind of level of trust that they had. And when that trust is there, then you need to understand what does challenge or conflict mean. And the context of that is if you think of a continuum on the far left, you know, is mean-spirited personal attacks, where people are coming out and saying, hey, this is your fault, you did this. And maybe using certain phrases that might be based on trust, etc., to the individual. It's like a mean-spirited person attack. Don't want to get to that area. But then on the far right, there's everybody pretending everything's okay when it's not. So people are going around in an illusion just because they don't want to step into conflict. But with a strong trust in a group, the people in the group then, when they want to step into conflict, there's a point, an ideal point of conflict in the middle where they will be able to call things out in a constructive and positive manner and frame it towards the team getting better. And that's where the values come in, because if you have a strong value system, and one of the values is transparency and openness and honesty, then people understand that, okay, he's calling me out and saying, maybe I could have done this, or that was a mistake, or that's something we can improve, but not to have a personal attack on me, but for the group and the organization to achieve its goals. And that's where you get to that phrase. Now, and the thing about it is you take club teams and I suppose you look at how much resources they have. And it mightn't be as possible, obviously, as it would be within an organization where they can have a meeting every week. But you have to spend time with things like this. That's why they're so hard to obtain or hard to maintain in a high performance situation. They need time. They need focus. And I suppose they need leadership to take that on board. So the first thing is relationships. The second thing is understanding what conflict is. And, and basing that on values and understanding that there's an ideal point of conflict and that both sides of that spectrum or continuum are actually negative for a team's performance or to demonstrate high performance. 
We're on a very interesting, diverse journey, touching on inner dialogue, resilience, trust, collaboration, value system. All these pieces that often are so important in the business or the sporting world. Something that I'm sure you've had huge experience in and something that the two of us greatly value, of course, is, is mentoring. And I suppose the question for you, Shane, is, is what does mentoring mean to you? And, and why could it be so important for people that don't really have mentors yet in their tribe? Yeah, great question. I suppose the context of mentoring, I would classify as maybe coaching slash mentoring. And it's, I know there's different pieces in it. So we can talk specifically about mentoring or, or coaching, which would be more what I do. Which would you rather, David, discuss? We know that you, you brand yourself as executive coach. So we're, we're curious really as to the subtle subtleties, the differences maybe between the two that people maybe aren't too aware of and also where you'd recommend people to go depending on their circumstance. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you can, I'd often say to people, I can take the coaching hat off <laughs> and they would say, if you want, and they'd often say, oh yeah, please, I want to get your opinion. But mentoring is it more of a system whereby you would talk to somebody, you might give your opinion on a certain situation or a dynamic, and it would be maybe a more advisory role. Whereas coaching, the fundamental premise of coaching is that all of the answers are within that individual. So that when you set forth on a journey with somebody, that your fundamental premise is that they actually have all the answers within them. And it's your role as a coach to, yes, guide them along the way, um, but it's more like asking them or revealing to them what are their challenges, what are their opportunities, and what are their growth areas. And for me, what these, you know, mentoring and coaching and what it is, is about, it's about getting better and being your best. So it's about any individual that steps forward into these spaces where they spend time every single week to dedicate to, okay, where do I want to go in my life? What's really important to me? And then where am I now? So it's about simplistic terms. It's about a current reality. So where do we sit today? Then it's about your ideal future state. And prospection being very important now in the context of coaching and psychology. So that we go from how do we get from our current reality to our ideal future state? And what are the gaps in our way? And moving then from that current reality to that ideal in a, the most effective and efficient manner possible, connecting to what's of value to that individual and that person. I suppose another aspect, if you take the, the science out of it and you talk about, okay, brass tacks when the rubber meets the road, what's the value in, in this? And the value for me is that it's very rare in life for we have a conversation in total trust with somebody who has no agenda. The only agenda for that person is that they want you to be your best. That they have a heartfelt, compassionate will for you to be your best and whatever that may be. And in those conversations, there's absolute gold. Because when we take of even, it's great to have a conversation with a friend. And yes, we obviously will all do that, myself included. All of those challenges can be reduced or opportunities enhanced with those connections. But when we have somebody that's outside of that peer group, someone that's a third person that has no I suppose, past history or connection in any sense, that they don't have their own agenda or their own experience of who you are or what you do. It's an absolutely, you know, fantastic opportunity to hear somebody reflect back what they hear in a professional context of the challenges or opportunities they face and how you can get to that, I suppose, ideal future state in the most effective and efficient manner possible. Another great message. And I would have known you, obviously, from back when you were playing with the mighty wild geese out in Orange County, California. Um, and your your history with Waterford and it's just looking back through when you're going into play with these teams and I looked into your career a bit more and what you've been saying over the last few years and some of the stuff really resonated 
But I was interested that you mentioned a story at the start about Liam Griffin showing you know, the importance of the, the performance psychology aspects of performance and how come there's been such a delay in that transitioning into club teams, into inter-county teams, into organizations? Why has it taken so long for it to get the maybe the credibility that it deserves? And it's only sort of maybe coming to the fore now. We haven't seen it as much over the last 20 years since 96 as it probably should have had in the game. Yeah, good, good question. And I'd say it's there. <laughs> but what I'd often say is, and I've been asked that question on numerous occasions, if you look at the highest performing individuals or teams in the world, even look at our own country, look at the highest performing hurling team, the highest performing football team for the last three or four years, they're doing it. You know, at the higher levels you go, you look at the top 10 golfers in the world. You look at the top five organizations in the world. You look at some club teams that are absolutely nailing high performances consistently year after year after year after year. They value it and they apply it. But unfortunately, as you go down the tiers and you go to the lower echelons of, you know, sport and performance, the value isn't there. Essentially, because the desire is maybe not there to be their very best. It's, maybe it's a social, and, and that's fine. I mean, we'll all transition into that period where we have the, the social game and we don't want to go into that high performance mindset or focus because we've been there before or because it's not for us and we're f- focused on a connection with our families and it's social outlet. That's brilliant, and that's what the GA is all about. But there is a difference between the highest performers and the ones that are achieving at the top, top level and going all the way back to maybe our own clubs. Um, in a junior junior setting. And the other context about it is, if we take back the first point, it's a mindset also, that the mindsets can often be different when somebody's at that, I suppose, elite, high-performing level and they want to get progressively better. It's completely different if you go right down the chain to you know a person that goes out on a Sunday morning to play a junior match and they're just there for the enjoyment of the game and to have some exercise over the course of the week. And it's just in terms of, let's say, a practical application for a young player or maybe a senior intercounty player right down to junior club. If someone wanted to actually look into this a bit more and try and develop their psychological profile, their mind gym, as you've called it in the past, what keystone areas would you tell them to look at? Would it be mindfulness, visualization, grounding techniques, or what particular one would you point them towards? Yeah, the first thing I'd say is time. So I just explained to a young person, I mean, if you take the context of your first touch in hurling or your kicking ability in football or your putting in golf, how would you improve that? And it'd be more of a coaching questioning. How do you improve that putting? Or how would you improve your first touch? The first touch, I go to the handball alley. My ability to take a score as a corner forward or a half forward in football, will I practice shooting? My ability to put, to put and maybe one or two put in most greens on a golf course, will I practice on the putting greens? Okay, so how much time do you practice and how will you improve in relation to that time? So that's really, really important. And then the science behind this is Anders Ericsson, and, you know, they call it the 10,000 hour rule. And actually what you dedicate time to imp- improves that area of performance. But what people tend not to do is it's actually deliberate practice. So it's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. And in that deliberate practice is focusing on keystone areas that you want to develop and actually spending time to practice it. So I'd always ask the question, what time do you have to dedicate to this? And then when they come back and they'd say, well, maybe you have 30 minutes, maybe you have five minutes a day, maybe you have 10 minutes a day okay, what's the most effective? Because we can all be efficient in high-performance sport at 100 different things, but effectiveness is a different construct in that it's I do one thing 
that has the biggest impact and maybe the other 99 different things are not necessary. So for me, when you go through that context of time, what's the most effective thing you can do in that space of time? I would always come back to mindsets and working in that space, first of all. So actually practicing, okay, what is the story that this athlete is telling themselves? And through questioning and maybe through writing down, you will get that story very, very quickly if you've skilled experience in that space. And maybe their story is that they're not good enough. And maybe their story is that, you know, every time they go to a, a performance that they're challenged in, that they get anxious and they, they don't feel like they can express themselves. And maybe their story is that, you know, they're great on the training ground and they have all of these fantastic skills, but when they step forth in a big game, that they can't do it under pressure. And from that story, then we try and change, change the script. Okay, so what's the story that you want to tell yourself? Where do you want to go with this? So I want to be better in high-pressure situations. Okay, so what can we do in that space? Well, we can start to talk ourselves into a better place. As Liam Griffin said in fourth, when I was 14, I still have the notes. He said, you can think or talk yourself into or out of anything. But that's only one aspect. You get that mindset and you make it authentic. How can I improve under stress in high-pressure situations? Well, how can I actually reduce my anxiety to a four, five, six on a scale of zero to 10, zero being deep sleep, 10 being high intensity anxiety or arousal. So the, the, the ideal performance state is at a four, five or six. So, okay, how can I get from that eight or nine before a game considering, oh, I mightn't perform here. This is a high pressure situation. What if I leave people down? How do I bring that back to a four, five or six? And then you get into the nitty gritty. What are the skills to take me from a nine or a 10 or a one or a two to a four, five or six? So we deregulate our emotions. How do we do that? Well, the best way we can do it is breath work. We can, we breathe through our nose, out through our mouth. There are certain specific real-time skills like panoramic vision, like sighing neurons that we can do within 10 seconds and we can take our regulation of emotion from an eight all the way back down to a five. And it's just a physiological response. And when some of the people that I work with understand that, okay, I can be in a high-pressure situation in a meeting or in a county fine, or in an All-Ireland fine, and I can deregulate my emotion to be calm within 10 seconds. Wow. That completely changes the game. So it does take time, it does take focus, and then it's identifying what are the most effective skills. But they all work in context, like visualization, goal setting, mindfulness. But what's the context of what the person wants to achieve? And what are their biggest challenges? And then focusing in on that area. So with that young athlete, that's the way we'd have to structure it. And it does take time. It's not something that can happen overnight. That's brilliant. And Shane, with, with all that, we've touched a lot on, on your past, right the way from 14 to now. Question has to be, what's next for you? Where can people find a little bit more about you? And what are the next big ventures on your horizon? Yeah, great question. I, you know, I, I was working on a reflective review, obviously, for obviously a number of clients over the last month or so. And one of the big questions I've often asked myself is, if in two years' time we were to die of natural causes or we were to pass away, what would you like to have done? And that question is something that I've, I've been mindful of in the last month or so. And there's a number of aspects that are really pertinent to me. And some of them are personal, some not so personal. But, you know, it's about... I suppose, expanding into a, a worldwide market whereby you can actually add value to people at the touch of a button. So from my context, what COVID provided was an opportunity for people to connect with me from all over the world. And within to 2020, I've worked in over 36 countries in the world in five different continents, you know, consistently. And that experience that I've built from that 
is now at a stage where I can actually expand that and to be accessible through the inspiredandexcellence.ie website and for people to be able to connect with me through there and really gain the, I suppose, the benefits of taking the time necessary to improve their life in that special way. So that's one aspect. But I also have, obviously, the personal aspects of, you know, the sporting aspects. We're with a club here in Ballygunner. We've won a number of championships in a row, and we want to try and retain that championship and, and try and go further afield. I know there was no Monster Club this year, uh, unfortunately, so we didn't get to compete. But, you know, I think the hardest thing we can do is win our club championship here and then hopefully progress from that. And then on a personal level, Hopefully within 2021, you know, the borders will open up. I was supposed to be at three different conferences last year in the U.S. with with some remarkable people like Joe Dispenza and um, trying to tap into that and kind of bring it to the next level from a a learning and an educational point of view. So without going too personal and too deep, those three areas are are what my focuses would be for 2021. So it brings us on to the final question of the show and one we ask everybody that comes on. And it's, what does high performance mean to you, Shane O'Sullivan? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I actually didn't spend any time preparing for today. So it'll, it'll come naturally to me. Um, I was thinking about it just earlier on in the conversation. We, we mentioned it a lot today. And for me, I mean, it's, I think it's about achieving or being at your best consistently over a, a prolonged period of time. And in order to be at our best consistency over a long period of time, I think we have to go back to the fundamentals of science and say, okay, where does that come from? And essentially, if you picture an iceberg, and we touched on it previously in the conversation, and it's often referred to as the iceberg model in psychology and science, and you take that iceberg and the 10% we see above the surface, that's the outcomes. So that's that high-performing team winning in All-Ireland. Maybe it's the Dublin team, five, six in a row, etc. Maybe it's the Limerick team, you know, going for maybe two out of three and trying to progress next year for three out of four. And that's the outcomes we all see. We see them performing at very high elite level. But underneath the surface of that iceberg, there are certain actions from a high performance perspective that both of those teams consistently apply every single week. So those actions might be they do their gym work, they work on values, they work on their visualization, they have a focused mindset, they, they look at their sleep, they take into account what their sleep patterns are, etc., etc., etc. And they consistently apply those actions over consistent period of time to achieve the outcomes of high performance but again as we go deeper below the surface you know 30 percent right below the surface that the mindset piece what are the beliefs assumptions and values about these teams that allow them to be high performing and to achieve consistent performance over time and that's where the goal is i mean that's where high performance really is at so I guarantee you, if you look at that Dublin senior team, or you look at the Limerick senior hurting team, their vision of what they want to achieve is way beyond winning in All-Ireland. You know, one, one that I know of um, in the past would, would have been Brian Cody's Kilkenny team, the very successful Kilkenny team. And, and a good friend of mine often referred to it to me in personal terms, but he said that their goal wasn't really to win All-Irelands, but it was to create a spirit and a bond that was unbreakable. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, that Dublin team, you know, you see them in St. Luke's Hospital on a Monday morning after in All-Ireland, obviously not this year, but in the past or Temple Street. And, and the ability to give back and their absolute humility to, to connect with people within their own community and society. It's absolutely phenomenal. So high performance, yes, they have the actions. And then they have on top of that the outcomes, but right below the surface, they have deep set of beliefs and values that mean something to them 
that when they go out and they win, they'll win on the field, but there's something deeper, connects them deeper to the group to actually give back to society or to put themselves in a better place for others. And I think that's what high performance is. It's consistency applying performance over time. Yes, that's the outcome. But what underneath? What is underneath that? Specific actions, high-performing actions, but right underneath that, specific beliefs, values, and assumptions that drive the actions that achieve the outcomes on the top of the surface that we can all see. Brilliant. Shane, you've given us a real whirlwind there. And, you know, what's come through is, is connection and relationships. And we'd like to both say just thanks very much for giving us your time today. We're really grateful. Wishing you all the very best. And stay fit, stay healthy, and keep in touch. Pleasure, um, David and Kieran, and best of luck with the podcast. I look forward to following your podcast now over 2021 and seeing it develop into the Antarctica and further afield. Cheers, <laughs> <laughs> Shane. Okay, Sloan. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.